Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 244 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Saturday, December 23rd, 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, recording on Saturday is not going to save you. <laughs> well, I, w- I was thinking that if we record this hour, and maybe in an <laughs> hour from now, and we keep going like this until the New Year's, Maybe I will not lose this bet. What, what the the bet was over under thirty, right? Something. I mean, I swear and, and, there was a time like in February, or March, where the pace was so strong that I was certain that you'd be buying me and Heather a dinner. And now tell is, everybody, t- tell everybody which episode of how what what number episode of twenty twenty three is this one? Sixteen. Uh, Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, now there are, you know, we have you know a week to go, a little more than a week, and so depending on what happens, maybe some emergency podcasts. We're back in business. I am going to Hawaii on Monday, and I am not taking <laughs> any podcasting equipment with me. Just let the record reflect. You're going into the four corners. I, I just, I, I'm, the, I'm playing four quarters offense for the rest <laughs> of the the next, you know, eight days for for those who for for the non basketball fans among you, the four corners offense is literally when you put four people at the extreme ends of the half court and you just they they dribble and pass to themselves as, as like a keep away. And unfortunately, unlike uh, basketball, I can't intentionally foul Steve to bring him to the podcast <laughs> line for extra episodes. <laughs> so this this one may have to be called Steve uh, episode two forty four. In which Steve picks out an expensive restaurant. <laughs> mm, interesting. We still haven't gotten a lot of uh, uh, suggestions from our listeners. So, you know, oh, yeah. we'll take them. You basically them. get to pick the spot. All five of you who are still listening at this point, you know, yeah. let us know. Well, you know, the numbers, <laughs> maybe this tells you something about uh, quantity versus quality, but the numbers have actually been pretty extraordinary. I mean, back when we were much more regular uh, recorders, we were lucky to get into the high thousands. Now it's routinely 12, 14,000 streams or downloads per episode. But that um, doesn't mean listens. No, no. Well, no, heaven forbid we try to track <laughs> that. Well, but that said, there is some kind of stat, I forget what it is, that does track a uh, percentage towards completion. Mm. And ours is unusually high. So apparently well, what happens you, is people fall asleep and they don't, <laughs> they don't stay awake to change. They have, maybe to, the, they have to let it run. Maybe the, maybe the less we record, the more people will listen. The, the less you build it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't record it and they'll still come. Um, um, I, mean, like I, I actually, this, this week I had, I had the most visited, uh, the, the most read post on my newsletter ever. So that was cool. Uh, on your Substack? On the, was yeah. it the Colorado? Uh, it was the Colorado. Things? It was the Colorado one. I thought that was an exceptionally good one. And I Thank think you. we're going to talk a fair amount about it here in just a moment. We might. We might just do that. So um, anyway, before we forget, though, happy holidays to everybody. Um, happy New Year. Our best wishes for, you know, uh, hopefully a, a more prosperous and healthy 2024. I got I got a good feeling about 2024. You know, it looks looks a little dicey. Do, do a little, you? A little sketchy going in. Um, how, how, you know? how are you feeling about your prognostication abilities, given the what we've been talking about for the last three minutes? <laughs> are you claiming that my claims about Spurs titles and podcast recording rates suggest that uh, that I may not be a reliable uh, Nostradamus? I mean, you know, I, I I think your track record speaks for itself. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> Sadly, you're correct. Um, so uh, so t- tell the good people what we're going to talk about in our rare Saturday episode. Well, believe it or not, we are going to take a voyage to Trumplandia, as we so often do. Because... <laughs> Who could have seen that coming? 
<laughs> it really is a cornucopia. The, the man is a cornucopia of interesting legal issues. Uh, and so we, we will primarily, though not exclusively, talk about the, uh, the Section 3 insurrection disqualification decision from the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, Steve, what else in Trumplandia will we find today? Uh, I think we'll talk a bit about Jack Smith's ultimately unsuccessful effort to get the Supreme Court to leapfrog the D.C. Circuit on the question of whether President Trump is immune from being criminally prosecuted for his actions surrounding January 6th and what that portends. Spoiler alert, not very much, Um, right? But just sort of the timeline from here, I think there's a lot of, Bobby, um, how do I say, misunderstanding on the internet about how Supreme Court timelines work. Well, you, you, sh- you shocked me, sir. There are these people on the internet who are sure that because they've read, you know, two, two quips, two, two excerpts of the Supreme Court's rules that they're absolutely positively convinced of how the Supreme Court actually operates and no one can persuade them otherwise. I mean, at this point, when, when you see commentary on the internet, do you even know that it's a person? Well, there's mm-hmm. that too. There's that. Uh, it's Roxy. Roxy, Roxy when Roxy when we're not home is 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 sending out her thoughts. Oh, no, Roxy would do much better than most of this. Roxy stuff. actually, Roxy knows how Supreme Court procedure works. Oh, it does. By, by osmosis, if nothing else. And dogmosis. Ooh, dog. Ooh, dogmosis. Dogmosis. <laughs> Uh, sure we're going to talk about we're, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about speaking of 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 denouements. We're going to talk about what happened with uh, the reauthorization of Section Seven Hundred Two. Spoiler alert: Not much. Um, yeah. The can got yeah, kicked out. The there will be more chances to talk about it in a few months. <laughs> um, hey, maybe one of our four episodes in twenty twenty four can be about Section Seven Hundred Two. Uh, <laughs> now you know. I think I, I will say this. I'm very confident. The new benchmark is more episodes next year than this year. Well, I mean, that's a low bar to pass, buddy. <laughs> Thus is, that is why it was selected. Um, and so. we will also uh, voyage over to counterterrorism, the counterterrorism beat, to take note of a uh, U.S. drone strike against an al-Shabaab target in Somalia as, as just a way to remind everybody, hello, hey, this, this, is all, <laughs> this all still goes on. Does, does anyone care but us? Um, and then for Valdi, we will let uh, – let whimsy take us where it does. Maybe some predictions. Maybe some Bobby's going to the. Hey, Bobby's going to the Sugar Bowl. Oh yes, uh, friends. I'm if very, you're going to be, I'm very jealous. Well, I, I got a mixed feeling about this because on one hand, I'm really excited about UT being in the college football playoffs. I'm very thrilled uh, to go to the Sugar Bowl to see us play Washington. Um, not super psyched about New Year's Eve in New Orleans. <laughs> uh, my, my kids are going to get an education. That'll be great. I was going to say, how do, you, how, how do Riley and Kate and Alice feel about New Year's Eve in New Orleans? Uh, I think everybody's, everybody's fine. <laughs> they're not worried. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not okay the ones who are worried. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be very far away. Um, I also, I, I'm just, you know, as, as I th- alluded to before, I'm, I'm in the awkward position of trying to figure out what happens if both Michigan and Texas win. Who do I root for in the national championship game? So mm-hmm. you, you have some experience with this that we can talk about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll come back to the UTTCU, the, the, the hedging theory. Of, the hedging uh, theory you of You of can't entirely win, fandom. you can't entirely lose. It's just like, are you an optimist or a pessimist, right? So Exactly. Wow. All right. Uh, should we dive in? Yes. Uh, let's, let's journey to Colorado. And uh, mm. Steve, wh- what about starting by uh, explaining to our good friends uh, what's in the 14th Amendment text 
it's always a good good place to start. What what do we got with the? Wait, you mean you, you actually want to talk about the text of section three actually, of the Fourteenth Amendment? Will you do the honors of explaining why and what what was going on? Uh, locate us in time <laughs> and purpose, and then we'll get to the text. All right, section three of the Fourteenth Amendment was adopted was proposed by two thirds of both houses of Congress as part of the Fourteenth Amendment in eighteen sixty eight. Uh, ratified by three-fourths of the states. Um, and it was obviously coming not just in the middle of Reconstruction, Bobby, but perhaps we might even say toward the high watermark of radical Reconstruction. Um, so perhaps at a point where you had the most aggressive, I would say sort of uh, punitive and retributive policies by the Republican-controlled Congress toward the you know, ex-Confederacy. Um, and one of the things that the radical Republicans were reacting to was the reality that in the 1866 midterm elections, um, a number of states that had been nominally readmitted to the Union by President Johnson sent to Congress people who had served in senior offices in the Confederate government um, and or senior positions in the Confederate army. Um, and the radical Republicans in Congress were not very thrilled about this prospect. So section three of the 14th Amendment, um, I'll, let me read it first. Um, it has one very, very long sentence and one short sentence, and both sentences are important. So the first sentence, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector or president, uh, sorry, elector of president and vice president comma, or hold any office, comma, civil or military, comma, under the United States, comma, or under any state, comma, who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, that is the United States, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. That's the first sentence. Second sentence, but Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So whatever the disability is, it can be overcome if, two, if Congress passes a concurrent resolution with two-thirds supermajorities of both chambers. Okay, um, so there are a couple of things going on here. So the first is, um, everyone agrees, Bobby, that Section 3 provides at least a mechanism by which those who served in the Confederate government, fought in the Confederate army, after having previously taken some kind of oath to the federal constitution, can be disqualified from holding future federal office? Here are the sort of the three buckets of questions. So bucket of questions number one, what does it actually mean to engage in insurrection or rebellion, right? So what is the substantive trigger to even fall within whatever the consequences are of section three? Um, Question number two, is section three self-executing? By which we mean, um, if you did engage in insurrection or rebellion, are you automatically disqualified from holding office? Or does some proceeding have to determine, right? Um, does someone have to, do, does, does it have to be implemented in some respect? For example, in a criminal statute that says as a consequence of a conviction for insurrection, you shall be disqualified from holding office. And then question three, Bobby, is, do, you know, when it refers to all of the offices you are barred from holding, does that include the presidency and vice presidency of the United States? Um, 
I think those are the three sort of universes of questions. That's, that sounds right to me. And so for this, this much should be obvious, but of course, the reason we're talking about this is that since January 6th, basically really from, from that moment, for some keen observers, the question has arisen uh, among the many people who by dint of their actions that day, or perhaps leading up to that day, in the course of resisting the peaceful and orderly transfer of, of government uh, to the Biden administration, had any of those actors, including perhaps Donald Trump, in quote, engaged in insurrection, such as to trigger the Section 3 disability? And therefore, the question is, is Donald Trump actually constitutionally barred from being on the ballot, or, or, or I guess you would say, strictly speaking, from actually becoming uh, president because of his particular actions. And of course, the same question can arise and has arisen for, for an array of participants. Notice you must be someone who has, uh, who has uh, got the status at, at the time. I think, Steve, it has to be at the time uh, having, pre well, no, at any time previously taken an oath to uphold the to support the Constitution, let's. You want to start with the language, the, the the battle of language surrounding the idea that the people who are eligible to become disabled, not all insurrectionists and rebels, but only the ones that previously took a certain oath. The language is well. You say you say a certain oath. You're you're, you're already prejudging yeah, the okay, yeah. Sorry, just figure speech. Previously taken an oath. Yes, uh, to support the Constitution. To support the Constitution. Question: Does there's no quote marks around to support the Constitution Correct. of the United States in the text. It just says, take an an oath to support the Constitution. Now, let's revert to the presidential oath. Here's what it doesn't say support. Yes. The presidents say, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. But not Steve, support. It doesn't say the word support, but Steve, yeah. I would argue that the <laughs> meaning of the word support- Preserve, protect, and, and the words, at least the words preserve and protect, if not also defend, uh, support versus preserve, protect, defend, I don't find it persuasive to no. argue that you have to use the specific term nor would it make sense in context that Congress, when it wrote the four, Section 3, didn't mean to prevent Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis from literally running for president in 1868. I mean, the, the, the textual argument on which the Colorado trial court had relied and which has been advanced by a pair of, you know, sort of right-leaning, right-ish right, right commentators um, – is, is nuts. I mean, so I think, Bobby, there's a structural argument that maybe Congress did not mean to encompass the office of the presidency, but I think that that argument only works atextually. The textual argument is just laughably silly. Well, I agree. I agree that there's, so there's two different ways you can try to reach this kind of result yeah. to exclude the president. Trying to play games with the precision of the wording on oath, the, the hook that gives it sort of this sort of initial veneer, is that the oath I just read, which is the president's oath, it's it's not the one that uh, federal- All employees, other federal officers take, right? right. All so other federal officers take an oath that has support in it. Right. So here's, here's a quick quote from the federal officer generic uh, oath. I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, so it is true that if you want to be hyper-formalistic, hyper, hyper formalistic, 
you could say, well, obviously, then the uh, 14th Amendment Section 3 prohibition on or uh, limitation of eligibility to be disbarred to those who've sworn to support the Constitution uh, must not include the president because the president only is swearing to preserve, protect, and defend and not support and defend. And I just don't buy that for a second. I think it's completely preposterous Agreed. to claim that there was, an, there was even the slightest degree of intent nor that there, nor is it persuasive to argue that there's any substantive difference between the words "preserve, protect, and defend" and "support and defend." I, I mean, if anything, I think I mean, if anything, if anything, preserve and protect, I think, is a broader obligation than support. Right, right? The greater which makes, the lesser. Exactly, which makes sense that the president actually has an even higher obligation. But well, okay. sorry, you might say, like, well, I don't support it, but I will preserve and protect it because it's just my duty, even though I wish we had a different constitution. You can imagine that. Exactly. Whereas you couldn't really say the... Well, I guess you could say, like, I support it, but I won't yeah. do anything to protect it. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, that, that might be... That, that's like the James Buchanan position. Well, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think it's all very regrettable. Uh, too bad we brought this on ourselves. Nothing I can I know. do. I uh, I, I'm just the president of the United States. There's nothing I can do. So um, I think the textual argument is nuts. Um, as I think we'll get to in a couple minutes, that doesn't mean I. That doesn't mean it's not an off ramp. But I think it's it's. That's right. We'll come back around to okay. whether um, whether it might a, be used. So there's a structural argument that I think actually makes a little more sense if we start talking about self execution, right? So self execute. So so the question, you know, how does Section Three get enforced? So the most common way, Bobby, historically that Section 3 was enforced is it was enforced against people who had been elected to the House or the Senate. And it was enforced against people who had been elected to the House and the Senate by the House and the Senate who refused to seat members that in view of a majority of the House or Senate satisfied Section 3. Um, that is powerful, Bobby, contemporaneous evidence. That it was self-executing, right? That yeah. there was there was no sort of separate proceeding by which the House or Senate determined that Representative, I don't know, right. Uh, Beauregard, right, had fought for the Confederacy and was thus triggered. So they weren't engaging in an impeachment and trial process. They weren't nope. awaiting a criminal charge to be brought by outside nope. prosecutorial forces. They, they just were refused. They just refused to see their members. Uh, can you argue that? I'm, the only argument I could think of, and I want to—I'm sure this isn't right, but I want to hear you respond to it. Um, you might say, "Well, that, that's different because the House always gets to judge the qualifications of its own members, and they could choose on the basis of insurrection or any number of things, regardless of what Section Three actually said." But I'm guessing that when early on they were doing this, they at least sometimes talked in terms of enforcing Section Three. Yep. Well, then. There you go. Shockingly. Yeah, but the other thing is, I mean, just to go back to, I mean, if we're, if we're all textualists now, go back to the last sentence of the Section 3, right? Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Interesting that the text of the provision gives Congress the power to remove the disability, but says nothing about how the disability is imposed. Right. It, it, the, let me draw out the point Steve is making here. So when we talk about this question of self-execution, that the, the essence of the idea is, Sometimes a substantive rule will be set forth. This often comes up in treaties, most notably, but here it's the Constitution's text. And there's clearly a substantive rule that uh, rebels and insurrectionists who had the prior oath um, are, are disabled. There can then be a question, is there supposed to be a process rule that's enacted by statute 
to bring into execution the substantive rule that's created from the other source. Again, this comes up all the time in our treaty law, and the United States has an approach that, that often puts a lot of weight on this. Um, Steve, we don't often find ourselves talking in the constitutional setting. Uh, for example, Steve, is there any statutory implica- implementation of the Constitution's age requirement for the presidency such that somebody who hasn't been shown to be 31 right. years 35. old yeah. Yeah, can be president since, you know, there wasn't a statute to, to, inf- to implement procedurally. No, I, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, we don't even have to go there. I mean, just look at the rest of sec of the 14th amendment, right? So the 14th amendment is a really good example of the, t- of the distinction between self-execution and non-self-execution section one of the 14th amendment, which creates the citizenship clause, the due process clause, the equal protection clause that is self-executing Bobby in the sense that if a state violates my rights under those provisions, I can sue them, uh, right? I don't need an act of Congress to authorize me to sue the state, right? Versus Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which empowers Congress to also pass statutes to enforce Section 1, right? So those statutes can execute Section 1, but they don't need to, right? That's, That's been the historical- the bane of many law students in con law and for yes. the courts over time as you yes. sooner or later start grappling with this question of, wait, is the scope of stuff Congress can do under Section yes. 5 maybe in some senses different than the scope of stuff that is done directly in a self-executing way by the provisions of Section 1? But but the fact that Section 1 is self-executing just adds further credence, right, to the structural argument that so is Section 3. Um, right. And, and but, the fact, yeah. as you said, to begin this thread, uh, I think it's very powerful. The Section 3 ends with a reference to uh, empowering Congress to do this certain thing, which is to remove the disability. It it seems structurally in staying just within the boundaries of the text of Section 3, it sure looks like the expectation was this is the rule, period, without some some particular mode of process that has to be followed. They were thinking about process. And the only thing they had to say about this was uh, the ability of Congress to turn this off, which is addressed yep. in that final clause. Which suggests it's already on. Um, yeah. The only problem is, so so where I think the self-execution and presidency arguments fit together is, Bobby, it's pretty easy to come up with sort of obvious places to enforce Section 3 against other putative office holders, right? The presidency and the vice presidency don't have the example of Congress refusing to seat a member, right? They don't have the sort of, the, their offices that don't jive, don't fit sort of hand in glove, right, with at least how Section 3 was typically enforced. It's part of why we are where we are, right? That that when, you know, these Colorado voters brought this lawsuit, their argument was that, yes, it's self-executing. The only way to sort of enforce it, though, is through litigation against a state secretary of state to keep, right, the offending person's name off the ballot. So that's how we got here. All right. Then there's the substantive question, which is, what does oh, wait, it mean? One, one oh. more. I want, I want to Sorry. throw out one more wrinkle because I'd, I'd yes. love to be, check all the boxes here. So can you make an argument about uh, ex- intent to exclude the presidency from the scope of this by pointing to the uh, way that the opening clauses first enumerate a handful of particular positions by name and- uh, And you know, don't include they, the presidency. Right. So they name senators and representatives- they name uh, electors for the presidency and vice president, and then there's the catch-all clause. And can you can you mount an argument that 
if they'd intended to include the president or vice president, they would have put them in the higher list. stature offices at, from a certain point of view. Surely they would have named that rather than silently including them under the catch-all provision. Uh, so maybe, and I, I mean, I, I'm, we're going to, uh, spoiler alert, right? I actually think that the right way this ends is with the Supreme Court saying, I mean, I, I wrote this on Thursday. So folks, you know, folks who subscribe to my newsletter already know this is how I feel. I, I think the right way this ends is with the U.S. Supreme Court saying that Trump did engage in insurrection, but that he's not disqualified because Section 3 doesn't apply to the president. And Bobby, I think that's a much more satisfying yeah. argument about the provision than the oath the president takes. Right. No, uh, please don't let them get on the oath path. Um, that wouldn't, yeah, we've already covered that. Yes. So I, I think they could, I wouldn't be shocked if they take your off-ramp path, Steve, I wouldn't be shocked if part of a major part of the analysis is the enumeration and, and the arguable implausibility or relative implausibility of lumping something as significant as the president and the vice president. And uh, I mean, there are, there, the I mean, Bobby, cars. there are contexts. I mean, there, there are con- obviously this is novel, but there are contexts in which the Supreme Court has applied clear statement rules. Um, when you are going to have a provision that would otherwise raise novel, serious, blah 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 constitutional questions, right? So, right. for example, requiring a statute that subjects a state to suit to actually say we intend to subject the state to suit, right? Waivers of sovereign immunity have to be expressed, right? So, you know, I. It would be not nearly as risible, right, for the court to say there are lots of structural clues that this doesn't extend to the office of presidency and vice presidency, none of which have anything to do with the oath. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, and, 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 and what, what, so the Colorado Supreme Court disagrees with that. The Colorado Supreme Court says clearly it applies, right? You know, the president holds an office. How could you say the president doesn't hold an office? Who really thinks that Robert E. Lee could have run for president in 1868, et cetera, et cetera? Or, or I guess, well, would the relevant comparator – see, you'd need to have somebody to, to fit here. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Anyway. Okay, uh, okay, on okay. to the substance. On to the uh, substance. So, so then there's the merits. And the merits are, did President Trump engage in insurrection? Um, let's be clear, not just on January 6th, right, but in his in his – overall campaign to subvert, undermine, and resist, right, the democratic transition of power on January 6th, and then Bobby in his efforts to foment the violence that actually took place on January 6th. Right. And so this is a really important point, because one of the things we'll talk about here is the the uh, extent to which uh, Trump might argue, and in his arguing, that uh, some of the, if I think the preferred framing for the, the Trump camp would be to say, everything that this stands on was protected speech under the First Amendment. Um, and if you think that the whole thing is based on his his speech the morning of the 6th, then that, I'm not saying that's the right answer, but at least you could see where you might say, oh, that does seem like we got to do a serious First Amendment analysis here, maybe a Brandenburg analysis, we'll talk about that. But Steve, your point is um, the disqualifying behavior is by no means necessarily limited to what he was saying publicly that morning. It's the entirety of the set of activities designed to prevent uh, the the transfer of power, right? Including so a lot through, of that's in, not in, be, right. Yeah, a right. lot of that's not public advocacy. Correct. Uh, that raises the First Amendment question. Right, like the you know the manipulation of of electors in some states. Right, the effort in Georgia to have Georgia manufacture slash find, right? 11,780 votes. Right. So right. The, the Georgia case and, and a lot of what we've talked about in previous episodes, 
about the the various cases that are raising issues about the behavior uh, in in particular attempts to get particular states to submit you know false or alternative electors. Um, that's a lot harder, I think, to defend as a First Amendment matter. Although there's still arguments to be made, but just listeners don't think that this is entirely about the public, much discussed speech that morning. Though that's certainly part of it. Or the or Bobby, I mean, don't forget the tweets, right? While while there are rioters inside the Capitol, right? Yep. So okay. Um. So the Colorado Supreme Court, as I suspect anyone who listens to this podcast by now knows. Um, ruled late on Tuesday by a four to three vote, although the three dissents all had slightly different forms of procedural objections, that one, Section 3 does apply to President Trump, that two, he is disqualified, that he meets the substantive criteria for engaging in insurrection. Um, But Bobby three, the court stayed its ruling um, this is actually something a lot of people missed when it came yeah. down. The court stated its ruling until January 4th, comma, or if President Trump files a cert petition asking the U.S. Supreme Court to review his case by January 4th, that is to say if Trump files by January 4th, not if the court reviews it by January 4th, until the U.S. Supreme Court has concluded its review. Um, so this last move right, effectively guarantees that Trump will be on the primary ballot in Colorado. Because the ballots go to the printer on January fifth, um, that's not a coincidence, <laughs> right? No, yeah. What a, what a what a funny bit of timing. No, that's but, right. But but it's clever on the. I mean, it's actually quite clever on the Colorado Supreme Court's part because normally someone who loses in a state supreme court or a federal court of appeals has ninety days, Bobby, sometimes extendable to one hundred and fifty, to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to step in. Right here was the Colorado Supreme Court basically saying, you know. We will give you a stay. We will we will give you what you want as long as you file in the Supreme Court in the next sixteen days, um, right? They kind Which of maneuvered is, them into a slightly quicker schedule than might have unfolded otherwise. Correct. Um, and, and it's important to add, of course, even with all these deadlines, the idea is one way or the other, this will actually get finally resolved before the general election, but probably not the primary election, right? So, so you know, I mean, as I as I said on CNN Tuesday night, like. You know, I think the odds are extremely high that Trump will be on the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. Um, yeah, I think unquestionably. Now, yeah. there's still high stakes in that if he gets knocked off late in the game, uh, you end up with a Colorado ballot that, I mean, what would actually happen? Would they put the runner up from the primary onto the ballot in Trump's stead? Or would there um, be no Republican nominee on the ballot? I mean, you know, the, that's just a so. If it's about the primary, of course, that's up to the Republican oh, yeah, nominating later convention. On in general, yeah. That which is why I think the U.S. Supreme Court. So, which is why I think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to want to resolve. So, let's back yeah. up a second. I had thought, and I had said before Tuesday, Bobby, that the U.S. Supreme Court would want absolutely nothing to do with the Section Three case. Um, right? That like right. the you know, a la war games. Right? The only winning move is not to play. Not to play. And that the only way they would take a Section 3 case is if someone forced the court's hand by actually disqualifying Trump. Right. Enter the Colorado Supreme Court. Now I think there's no way the court stays out of this, right? I mean, it's not just the importance of the question. It's that, like, what happens in other states? Like, other states are not bound by the Colorado Supreme Court's analysis of whether Trump engaged in insurrection, Um Right, other states are not bound by the Colorado Supreme Court's analysis of the procedural obstacles to disqualifying him, and so for uniformity's sake, Bobby, if nothing else, 
right? The court has to take this case. Yep. And, they, and as you say, if you're going to do it, it would be best to do it quickly so that yes. you can try to minimize the frictions at the general election stage. All right. So then, gets the hard, then we get to the harder question, which is what should the court do with it, right? So, so assuming Trump files by January 4th, which I think I have, you know, there's every reason to believe he will. Um, you're the U.S. Supreme Court, Bobby. What do you do? Yeah. So we haven't really talked about the actual core question of what did exactly Trump engage in insurrection? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did yeah, did he engage in insurrection? And, and there's all kinds of uh, collateral issues. For example, you'll see some amount of uh, discussion around the idea that well, unless he's either been impeached and convicted of on an insurrection charge, or has been given a uh, has been charged and convicted under the federal offense of insurrection, uh, obviously neither of those things have happened or or going to happen during the pendency of this case. Some some are arguing that. Well, without that, then no action can be taken. It's a species of the the idea that we talked about a moment ago that Section 3 is not self-executing. It is possible the court will go that route as, as a means to not have to engage the substantive question and make the case go away. Um, I, I don't think it's right for the reasons we talked about earlier. So uh, the Colorado Supreme Court unanimously concluded that his actions uh, were insurrection or participation in insurrection. Uh, and Steve, should we talk now about the First Amendment intersection of that? There, there, there's obviously some tension between the idea that uh, there are ways to participate in insurrection via words. On the other hand, uh, the First Amendment protects speech to a remarkable degree in our society. Is Steve, is the Brandenburg test for incitement the right lens to bring to bear to decide this? Or do we even know what the right, right. Who knows? lens is? <laughs> I mean, Are you saying there's some play in the joints about which test to bring to bear? Bobby, there's play in the joints about everything. I mean, the <laughs> right, the... You know, hey, you're spoiling the secrets of law school. No, no, but I mean, I mean, so this is part of my, you know, part of my skepticism and hesitation about this whole case is, you know, I am no fan of President Trump. I am no defender of President Trump's, but like none of this is settled, right? Like what is the standard of review for whether, you know, an individual has engaged in insurrection? Is it, you know, a preponderance of the evidence? Is it clear and convincing evidence? How much um, How much uh, discovery since you know, obviously the, the Colorado process was extremely rapid but of necessity and I don't believe there was- Although there discovery. was, I mean, there, there was a hearing, there were witnesses, there were experts. I mean, like right, they but actually- But it prompted dissents from some of the, uh, the issue I think that at least some of the dissenters were- complaining about uh, was purely the process. And at least one of the Colorado justices was basically saying, this is so weighty, somehow it doesn't feel like quite the process. Was yeah. Although, although I, mean, I mean, I guess I would just say that in that context, the Supreme Court has always said the onus is on the person challenging the lack of process to explain how they were deprived of Right, a meaningful opportunity to be heard. Right, so like, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of this on the internet. Like, oh, there was no due process. There was like, well, you know, what exactly was President Trump not allowed to argue, or what evidence was he not allowed to put on? How is he deprived? Right, I mean, like, that's the that's where the argument really ought to be, as opposed to it just felt short. <laughs> right. Well, look, I mean, the, the, I brought that up because you were making the point. I know. That all, oh, no, no, this, all I'm, not, I'm not responding to you. Yeah. I'm responding to. But the point I want to make is it reminds me, and I wonder if you see the parallel as well. This is not unlike the aftermath of Boumediene, where the courts found themselves, you know, Congress wasn't stepping up to quickly create a statutory and process framework to flesh things out in that context either. And here I'm talking about the Guantanamo detainees 
post-2008 when the Supreme Court said, in effect, there must indeed be a, a fresh habeas process, not just um, the kind of review that the, uh, gosh, Steve, it's been so many years now, I'm forgetting, was it, was the final version of the Military Commissions Act, uh, oh, combat, the review under the combatant staff's review rules, whatever it was, the courts kind of had to work it out and sound. They had to figure out what the standard of uh, proof was. They had to figure out all kinds of bells and whistles. There's a bit of a similar I spent, I spent thing years about that jurisprudence. It was it was something we used it, to it think would uh, be interesting to other people forever. Not so much. Cut, you, cut, so really quickly, so we're edited. We're doing the new editions of our national security and counterterrorism law case books. Bobby, what used to be two full chapters on the habeas cases is now one chapter. Yeah, and that you know, honestly, it's probably relative to the level of interest that's out there these days. Was, it seems it's probably generous. It was, it was, it was so painful to like you know cut out all discussions of all of these like DC Circuit decisions from 2011 and 2012. Anyway, all right. Um, all of this goes right to why I think. I mean, I wrote about this on Thursday. Like you know, we should be like we're only in this mess because other actors who had a chance to prevent us from getting to this point have failed. I mean, and it's worth reflecting on who failed. I mean. It would have taken nine more Republican senators in 2021 to vote to convict President Trump in the second impeachment trial to, you know, absolve us of the need to have to deal with this now. I mean, the electoral process, right? The Republican Party not turning on President Trump because of his actions surrounding January 6th. Anyway, but here we are. And so now we have the problem where, I mean, let's back up a second. Bobby, I think two things can be true, right? I think that almost no matter what your definition of insurrection is, there is significant evidence, right, that President Trump's behavior before and on January 6th helped to at least support, right, the violent attempt to prevent the certification of President, then President-elect Biden as, as the president. But, right, but we have no standards for this. We have no precedent for like how much evidence is enough, right? What's the right sort of quantum of proof? What's the right, you know? And so the problem from the US Supreme Court's perspective as I see it is if you're not just going to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court, and I very much suspect they're not just going to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court, how do you issue a ruling that reverses the Colorado Supreme Court without Bobby appearing to vindicate President Trump's conduct? Let me ask you this: we we haven't we haven't addressed one of the key questions, which is what are or might be the elements that define what insurrection is. For example, does 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 it all have to tie in to the violence at the Capitol that day, or does it also count to do other things such as is at issue with the Georgia right. case that are nonviolent? But, uh, you know, whether it's con artistry or political leverage or coercion of some some other kind, trying to get talking people into subverting the ballot results. So, I mean, I think I think by itself, just like one phone call saying, hey, help me find 11,000 votes is not insurrection. Right. Um, it's the pattern to me. But I mean, let, let me do it this way. Let's take a, an example, a, a more familiar historical example. OK, at what point? were Confederates engaged in insurrection. So I think everyone agrees that by the time Beauregard fires on Fort Sumter, right, there's a real live insurrection underway. For was sure. there one was there one before then? Wouldn't you be able to mount an argument that especially if you pivot from insurrection to rebellion yeah. and say that uh, expressly and formally rejecting the government's authority 
was, I mean, in, in what sense wouldn't that be rebellion? So I think it's, I actually think it's both, right? And, and so for me, the real act is, we don't talk about this much in our civil war histories, but when South Carolina seizes the other federal military installations in and around Charleston, which they do, Bobby, I think in the weeks leading up to, right, the firing on Fort Sumter, right? You know, no, no shots were fired, but they seized it without, right? They seized it by force. It's still, yeah, right. This is, look, this is the spectrum of force that goes from implicit, you know, you, no one's brandishing, but you would think that they might, to brandishing weaponry or the capacity to express threats, to uh, approaching the edge of use, to pointing weapons, to firing on Fort Sumter. Yep. So all this is to say that I think two things can be true, that I think one... You know, I I'm I'm comfortable arguing and would be comfortable arguing that President Trump's behavior, as based on the public record that we have, right, meets pretty much you know any sort of cons- any broad accepted definition of engaging in insurrection across Bobby when you take the full pattern of behavior into account, right? But right, two, it's not so open and sh- it's not like President Trump is 33, right? Like it's not it's not so open and shut where there's no reasonable basis on which anyone could dispute it, and that's the that's what to me puts the Supreme Court into a sticky wicket, right? And and of course this is why you see people very drawn to trying to say, well, what's what's the federal criminal definition or what's the federal criminal element? What would be the like that that doesn't necessarily tell us the right answer, even if you could pin that down with specificity. Yep. Okay, so what we've what we've determined so far in this discussion is there's a lot of ambiguity about what exactly the elements are that constitute the forbidden thing, participation in. And, and, and I think the and I think the unsigned majority opinion by the Colorado Supreme Court, Bobby, does a very very thoughtful and thorough job of laying out what it believes the elements are and why it believes President Trump satisfies them. And I think it's a. I mean, folks should read it. Like I think it's quite persuasive. My point is just that I don't think it's self-evident. Right. And that we could, I think the most likely thing here, Steve, is far from getting a unified, unanimous Supreme Court decision that sort of deploys maximum judicial credibility, we're probably going to get all over the map uh, a series of different opinions where a lot of, uh, I don't know, CNN legal commentators, such as yourself, are going to have to do some quick adding up of what the different lines of argument are in order to figure out on what basis did the outcome follow? But probably the outcome will be some kind of off-ramp, as you suggest. So, so this is what I've been writing about all week. So Thursday in my newsletter, and then in an op-ed that Steve Maisie and I have in the New York Times on Saturday, um, the question to me is, Bobby, how do we avoid a fractured decision? Because I think a fractured decision would be terrible, um, right? And and like the, the comparison to me is, right, contrast two very, very political Supreme Court decisions. Contrast Bush versus Gore, and U.S. versus Nixon, um, right? In Bush versus Gore, whatever you think of the majority's equal protection analysis, right? There are, there's a large chunk of the population that believes that five Republican-appointed justices, right, installed a Republican as president. Um, there are counter-arguments, like there are ways to defend the court's analysis, but that is a widespread perception versus Nixon, right? Where everyone, I think, agrees that a unanimous court with justices who hated each other and didn't get along at all, right, worked really, really hard to forge a compromise that actually meant that the court was speaking in one voice 
in a critically important moment for the separation of powers. And Bobby, in a context in which, as I think we've subsequently learned, a divided court might have not been so quickly followed. That's right. right. I mean, the, there were serious discussions by president, you know, among President Nixon's team about not following, right, a decision that was like five to three. Um, and here it was eight nothing, and it was ostensibly written by Nixon's own handpicked Chief Justice Warren Burger, and that left him no room to maneuver. Absolutely, now, it is hugely important. It's, it closely parallels the story almost every lawyer learns in constitutional law about Brown v. Board and, and what Earl Warren accomplished by landing against all odds. Um, a unanimous court. Right. After Brown was originally argued, it was clearly not going to be unanimous. It was going to be divided. Uh, the relisting and, and the politicking and the changes that took place after Warren came in ultimately re- uh, produced a unanimous opinion, which I mean, you look at all the controversy that attended it anyways, um, the, the unanimity of the court was really important in, uh, in the opinion's credibility despite that. Well, and, and let me just say, and in both Brown and Nixon, and I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, I think in both of those cases, there are good arguments that the, uni- that the unanimity came at the cost of analytical po- persuasiveness. Well, right? I think that, that, that is often, that's a very common observation. It's conventional wisdom about yes, Brown, yes. that there was, there was all sorts of lines of argument you might have seen that you didn't. And and it, and even a tone to the thing that clearly showed an intent to write for a broader public because it was much more than just a legal ruling, right? And Nixon's sort of the other end of the spectrum, which is give everybody a little, right? So in Nixon, you've got the sort of the broad endorsement of a constitutionally grounded executive privilege, which was technically unnecessary in that case, in exchange for right a very very fact specific repudiation of the privilege's application in that case, right? So. So the question, Bobby, to me is, is there any way with the court we have, right, to produce some kind of, you know, Brown or Nixon type ruling as opposed to Bush versus Gore type ruling? I don't think there's any chance of a unanimous ruling here. Um, I don't. This is obviously completely speculative. Well, yeah, it's, it it's certainly feels like the relations amongst the justices and in the disposition of at least some of the justices to want to weigh in on in ways that are incompatible with each other yep. is bound to lead to some divergence there. Even, even if ultimately they may all agree for, uh, for it could be an overlapping consensus with different underlying reasons for getting there that, um, that it's not in some ways, that the rule isn't applicable here for some set of reasons. We're still going to get a variety of opinions articulating those. We won't get one sort of paper over the differences opinion. I just don't see this court going there. But what if, so let me throw out two possibilities, right? What if, possibly one is just about this case. What if, right, there's a deal among some majority, not all nine, but some majority of the justices to basically trade, right, an opinion that's an opinion that repudiates Trump's conduct, whether it specifically says it's insurrection or not, right? An opinion that goes out of its way to really, you know, drop the hammer on Trump, while saying, right? Ultimately, because say Section Three doesn't apply to the presidency, right? This is a decision for the voters to make, right? So that's so. Possible number one is that. Possible number two is if we loop in the Trump immunity case. Right, which I know we're going to talk about in a sec, that the court hands those down together. And on the same day says, 
We're not keeping him off the ballot, but he sure as hell can be prosecuted, right? And, you know, hey, the prosecutor, and oh, by the way, if he's convicted, you might want to think about not voting for him, people. Well, it's interesting. Do you think, I I like your idea. I think that the extension of the trade-offs to encompass the other litigation is an important piece of the puzzle here. Uh, I don't, you'll have to tell me if you think the timeline for the other case could align with the pressure on the first case to get this done by the general election. But but I think you, you could be onto something there. Do you think they could go so far as to say, and by the way, if he is ultimately convicted in this other case, that that would have some implications other than just, hey, it might be distasteful. No, because no, Smith didn't indict Trump for insurrection, right? I mean, like, I, I like if, right? I mean, but if, if, you know, so just to, that's shorthand, right? I mean, as folks might know, none of the four charges against Trump in the D.C. January 6th case have disqualification as a penalty, unlike the federal insurrection statute, which specifically says, right, a conviction under the statute, among other things, disqualifies you from holding future office, right? So, you know, I don't know where to go that far. But I mean, I guess, Bobby, the question is, like, I don't even know if unanimity is what we're going for with this court. But like, if you could get like, six justices, right, to, to sign on to an opinion that said both, like, one, Trump's behavior was reprehensible and like unbecoming, right? The office of the presidency, but two, there are technical reasons why that's ultimately up for the to the voters. Like, I think that would be a. I mean, I know that that's not going to make anybody happy, right? The the Trump supporters are going to be like, "What the hell, court? Why are you going after our guy?" The Trump critics are going to say that's such a cop out on the court's part. Like, fine, I get it. No one's going to be happy. There are times when the court's institutional responsibility is to not make everyone happy. Right. But also, Bobby, but is to avoid making nobody happy. Right. Like like this kind of like what you want to call the Solomonic compromise. You want to call it like judicial statecraft, whatever is actually like I called it in my piece on Thursday, high politics. Right. This is sometimes what the court has to do. I think your pathway and the possibility that you get six, maybe seven justices to agree to something that's. Uh, the cup half full, the cup half, cup half empty, uh, with a couple of standalone dissents. I, I, I could certainly see that. I think the court has some, most notably the chief, uh, who care deeply about the institutional capital and the. They, first of all, they're institutionalist. Some of them, uh, and the chief being sort of highly visible among them, and they have well, no love lost for Trump court institutionalists, but also constitutionalists, et cetera, that are thinking also about the larger picture of political stability. Um, I think it's an interesting question whether you could peel off. I mean, are you, are you basically anticipating that this kind of solution would be accompanied by a dissent from Thomas and Alito? And Alito, yep. Yeah. And maybe Gorsuch, but like, you know, I don't know. If, I, yeah. if, I, if I'm the chief and, and if I am the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, right, I am already trying to think through, like, if ever there was a moment for the Chief and Kagan to, like, you know, do their sort of their thing, like, this this strikes me as... Anyway, why, can we bring in the immunity case just so that we can talk about timing? Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah, because we're running late anyways. Let's do so, it. So, um, it's the problem with recording on a Saturday, right? There are other, <laughs> other things going on. All right, really quickly, so... Um, 
obviously in early December, um, Judge Chutkin, the D.C. district judge who's presiding over the January 6th criminal case in D.C., denied Trump's motion to dismiss on the ground that he's absolutely immune from criminal prosecution. Um, Bobby, as you know, but let's remind our listeners, right, Trump has sort of three arguments, um, right? Argument number one is, I'm going to call it the, the really stupid double jeopardy argument, which is that he was acquitted in his second impeachment trial. Ergo, he can't be criminally tried for the same conduct. Right, um, right. No, there are no votes for that proposition yeah, on the that, U.S. That, Supreme Court. That's just wrong. It's just, I mean, it's, it's, no one, even, you know, as, as I, we have some listeners who are probably pretty skeptical of this court. This is, this is not it. Um, the second argument is that um, in general, right, presidents are not entitled, to, uh, presidents are entitled to absolute immunity from any criminal prosecution for anything they do while they're in office. I, that's actually going even further than Nixon versus Fitzgerald, right? So Nixon versus Fitzgerald said absolute immunity only for acts within the outer perimeter of your official duties. Yeah. Um, in a civil right now, and that was in the civil context. So I don't think the court would endorse that. I think what it really comes down to, Bobby, is does Nixon's does Nixon's outer perimeter absolute immunity extend to criminal prosecution, right? And the court could duck that by saying even if it does, what Trump's being tried for is outside the outer perimeter of his official duties. There's been some of that in some of the civil cases against Trump. Or they could just say, no, as the Office of Legal Counsel concluded in 2000, you know, criminal prosecution is a different kettle of fish from civil liability. Nixon doesn't apply, yeah. right? Timing-wise, so here's where things get interesting. So Trump filed his appeal in the D.C. Circuit, um, I want to say on like March 7th, uh, March, December 7th or 8th, um, at which point Jack Smith tried to leapfrog the D.C. Circuit by filing something called cert before judgment. Yeah. Um, and cert before judgment is an authority the Supreme Court has had since 1925, basically only over lower federal courts. They can't do this to state courts. But the idea is that, Bobby, when you have a case of you know, uh, surpassing national importance and a ticking clock, right, the court can move quickly. Um, historically, those were few and far between. Historically, it was cases like the Nazi saboteurs, the steel seizure case, the Watergate tapes case, the Iranian hostage crisis case, right? Like, yeah. The, the 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 once a decade, right? Um, but something interesting in the last four years, as I've written about a bit, is the court has been much more aggressive in using cert before judgment. They've granted it 19 times um, since uh, February 2019. Bobby, that's a lot. Um, yeah. yeah. And so there's a whole thing like, should they do it here? Um, as I think folks know by now, yesterday on Friday, the court denied Jack Smith's petition for cert before judgment with Bobby no explanation and no dissent. Um, at least no public dissent. To me, and I'm curious what you think, what that really reflects is just the DC circuit is moving really fast, um, right? The DC circuit is going to hear oral argument, Bobby, after full briefing on January 9th. Um, and so to me, like the denial here re- re- reflects two things from the Supreme Court's perspective. One, this case is going to get back to them pretty quickly. Like the DC circuit's probably going to have a decision on the books by, I don't know, MLK Day. Right. And so what's the difference of three weeks, right, from the Supreme Court's perspective? But Bobby, too, I think maybe they denied because they're worried that they're going to have an even bigger January 6th case to deal with first. Um, right. And and one other really weird clue about this. Um, earlier this week, the court set for oral argument these completely unrelated emergency applications about these Biden administration um, uh, ozone emission standards. 
right? But Bobby, they set him for argument in February. Um, there's no more briefing. Like, there's no reason, like, you know, they're fully briefed. They're ready to go. And yet they're setting them for argument in February. So you see them carving out a little elbow room for themselves while at the same time trying not to make it even more crowded and or more as if they're trying hard to get all the issues in front of them at once, which will exacerbate the the unhappiness of whoever then loses out on the end results. And just really quickly on the timing. So there's been a lot of not very well informed takes out there about how Trump can now delay the Bobby, the DC case, the Jack Smith case. Yeah. Um, guys, n- that's not really true. So yes, technically he has 90 days up to 150 to file for cert. Um, the DC circuit can do the exact same thing the Colorado Supreme Court did, which is we'll stay further trial. Pers- uh, let's assume, Bobby, the DC circuit is going to reject immunity, which I think everyone assumes mm-hmm. it's going to do. Yeah. The ruling can say, like, we will, you know, we will continue Judge Chutkin's stay of trial proceedings for 14 days, right? And if you file for certiorari during those 14 days, the stay will persist until the Supreme Court resolves the case. And if you don't, the stay dissipates, yep. right? That forces Trump to file in 14 days. And once the petitioner Bobby files in the Supreme Court, he or she loses control over the timing. Right. The the only place where a Supreme Court petitioner has real control over the timing is the actual filing of the petition. If the DC Circuit takes that away, it would get back to the Supreme Court very quickly. So it really is exactly the same move Colorado Supreme Court used. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, which is all a way of saying that one way or the other, by the end of January, right, the Supreme Court is going to have these two massive January six cases sitting before it. And Bobby, I think the court's going to feel a lot of pressure, not just to decide both of them, but to decide them both fairly quickly. Right. Um, may, and so you would ask at one point, right, whether they, whether the timing would allow the court to sort of, you know, track these together. Yeah. Um, the answer is if the court wants it to, it absolutely. Wants to. Yeah, it can. It can if it wants to. Oof. This suggests we are in for, what was that I said earlier about 2024 being a real, right. uh, yeah. Well, so so it's funny. So I was on a couple of like Supreme Court, you know, preview events in like September and October where I had, where other commentators were like, you know, this term really doesn't have an obvious theme. And, you know, this term is really <laughs> not shaping up. And I said, the rule you know, of the, what I said was, so I, what I said was by the time we're done, this could be the Trump term. Well, this, this could, depending on how this goes, this could be the most momentous term in in the past what twenty years in I some mean, respects because there are ways in which uh, the rule of law, democracy, yeah. the the presidency, all of it's on the table in certain scenarios. Here, it's really wild, and, and I think, and I think I'll just say that, like you know. <sighs> There's really, Bobby, a very rich debate. I actually think I'm going to start my federal courts class with this in the spring. So for the two of you listening who are in my spring 2024 federal courts class, here's a preview. Bobby, there's a really rich debate, right, about whether the Supreme Court's job is to do, quote, pure law, unquote, right, or the Supreme Court's job is to do, like, you know, law as a sort of more amorphous, politically infused concept, right? And one of the real, I don't know, hallmarks, right, of the turn toward originalism in the last 10, 15 years has been the defense of originalism that it's it's analytically pure, right? That it's that, you know, originalism, whatever else you might think of it, has the virtue of 
not sort of accounting for not not allowing for such obvious interjection of political considerations. It's it's the Odyssean model, lashing yes. yourself to the mast. Yes, and the outcomes are what they are. Right. Or let uh, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Right, the old the old Latin maxim. Um, and I'll just say, like you know. I don't. I don't know if this makes me sort of a pragmatist. I don't know if I don't know what this makes me. But like, you know, any history of the Supreme Court that doesn't treat the court as having been engaged in high politics at almost all of the most sensitive moments of its history, I think is is not a fairly accurate history of the Supreme Court. That's not necessarily to say that that's right, right? But like historically, the court has not shied away from high politics in these moments. It's leaned into them descriptively, but clearly is the case, whether it's normatively desirable, you know, to some extent, some of the momentum intellectually behind the originalism movement is a rejection of the idea that it's normatively desirable. Right. Which produces a real right. irony. But 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 I guess all I'm saying is that produces a real irony in our current moment, because it suggests, right, it suggests that if you really are all the way in on that commitment to the analytical purity of the originalist exercise, then all that matters in the section three case is the sort of specific proper originalist understanding of section three and none of the consequences, right? And none of the sort of political stakes. Well, I, so I think that works as to some as, I mean, there's many issues as we've enumerated on this episode where originalism points somewhere or textualism points somewhere really clearly, then, then that, that argument of course has bite and needs to have bite or else people are not really adhering to those principles. The, the issue would be there will be open textured areas where those methods aren't necessarily going to yield you anything that clearly binds. And in those cases, there's kind of no avoiding the higher politics you were talking about a moment ago. Well, I think on I that note, shall we? On that, on that land, note. Yeah. All right. So really, really quickly, um, I'll do the section 702 update because it's about 30 seconds long. Congress was supposed to have this really important debate about reauthorizing Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which was set to expire on December 31st. And Bobby, like any good Congress, it did what all good Congresses do, it punted. Um, so at the very end of the FY 2024 National Defense Authorization Act is a cryptic provision that just erases December 31st, 2023 from the current version of Section 702 and replaces it with April 19th, 2024. So... We'll be right back here in three and a half months having the same debate. You know, it's it's really, uh, let me offer a couple of comments on this. One is, wh while it's definitely true, of course, there there was no grand public facing debate. You, you had this massive behind the scenes battle uh, that really brought to the surface the the breakdown of, of to, to whatever extent the GOP used to have sort of a national security institutions consensus. We've known since basically... 2016, at least by 2018, that, that that had broken down and that the GOP um, really actually liked the Democrats too. But both parties are, have sharp divisions about how they feel about the national security institutions versus liberties. Um, they come at it from very different political homes, but you have this, this cross-cutting divide. And with the GOP House unable, you know, you've got, you've got the Intelligence Committee uh, with its more institutionalist approach, you've you've got the the Jim Jordan sort of crew with its approach. It became clear that uh, Mike Johnson wasn't going to be able, or at least I, my read of it was, it became clear the speaker wasn't going to be able to reconcile this in any particularly uh, uh, smooth way. And 
the compromise of kicking things off to April followed from this. What's wild is here you did have a train that was leaving the station, the National Defense Authorization Act. So there was space to attach something into a vehicle that was definitely going to get passed one way or the other, or pretty likely to get passed one way or the other. Uh, I don't know of any such vehicles that are going to be around in April. And so the chance, I know there are some who feel that the uh, 702, the, the idea of any kind of renewal for 702 is now actually in greater jeopardy uh, because there won't be that forcing function of legislation that you can attach something to. Even if it's a major reform version of it, there's very much a chance that not only will there not be reform, but there won't be a 702. Um, we'll see. I mean, I, I like to think the cooler heads will prevail and some kind of compromise can eventually be reached, but it'd be foolish to assume that there aren't there, there, there isn't a constellation of outcomes that might come together here that result in simply the loss of 702. I wouldn't be that shocked, although I'd certainly be disappointed. I, I would just, I mean, I realize, I realize this is going to sound hopelessly naive. I would just love <laughs> for us, you know, um, I would love for us to have a real debate, right, about surveillance reform, and and no one seems to want to. Like, you know, I don't think Section 7, like, I, I think we can talk, like, pub, I, I think there are ways to get Congress engaged in a debate about, you know, should there be an additional showing required before you can query, you know, 702 take for U.S. person information? Like, you know, this is not ideological, Bobby. Like, there's, this is, a, you and I have had this debate, like, Sure. Lots of people have this. Like, I just, it, the way that the brinksmanship against which Congress does this politically is just so counterproductive to anything that cl- remotely resembles good policy. Well, neither of us are trying to get reelected or raise money. Or uh, you're trying to raise money. Well, this is true, but, but not for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should like have a button we can press right here to play some sort of UT fundraising commercial. Seriously. Uh, yeah, be hate nearly the end of the tax year. Be sure to send your donation to the University of Texas. The, the football teams in the beast in, in the in the in the national championship playoff. semifinals. That does we need your help. help. That does help. Oh, of course it does. Okay, and then um, real quick, uh, I mentioned earlier, we have uh, a little minor flurry of headlines around a particular drone strike in Somalia against an Al-Shabaab target, an individual linked to an attack that had killed three Americans at, at the airbase and air, and airbase in Kenya. Um, just insert reminder here that uh, uses of force in relation to the 2001 AUMF and all that followed from it uh, do continue. They just don't seem to attract headlines in today's world. Um, Steve, shall we close the books on the serious stuff and yes. end this podcasting year with frivolity as it was meant to be? So I, I think, I mean, since we've gone on for so long, I think we can make this short and sweet. Let's just do our football semifinal and final predictions. Okay. Okay. Um, so you are, you are going to the sugar bowl. I will be uh, at I'm, the sugar bowl. I, I, I am very, be, I am very jealous. I am super excited about it. Uh, UT football is really on a hot streak. It has really been exciting to see. We have a whole host of players who have, uh, I think, shot above their anticipated development curve. And a lot of them are going to be playing on Sundays and drafted you know, relatively soon. But right now, um, they're all together. And I think that it's a terrible matchup for UT against Washington. In the it's a terrible that- matchup. It's like, it's it is, it is and isn't, right? So our, our biggest weak spot is plainly uh, downfield pass defense. defense. Um, and Michael Penix Jr. is an NFL-grade quarterback for Washington. He's fantastic. However, one thing we've got that 
this will be the most of this they've seen for sure. We have an NFL class uh, defensive line when it comes to putting pressure. Uh, Penix is going to face more pressure, I think, in this game than he's faced all year. That will help offset it a lot. I still think they'll they'll still have aerial success. They will not have ground success. Nobody has ground success against these guys. Um, and it's a question of whether the offense for UT shows up like it can. And it's, it is an incredible offense. So I think what we're looking at here is something of a shootout. And so I think UT is going to take it. I'm going to go with uh, 41 to 35. So I am really worried about Michael Penix. Um, I watched a bunch of their games this year, Bobby, because I actually really I I kind of like Pac-12 football, which is no longer a thing. Um, <laughs> well, that you ruined it. <laughs> I know. Um, you know, watching UT play all year, like the one place where we were vulnerable was you know deep passing attacks, and Washington's is the best in the country. Um, I, I'm hard pressed to imagine Bobby a worse matchup. Like Michigan would be such a better matchup because Michigan's passing attack is all short stuff. Um, I am, I am skeptical that UT can win this game. Uh, I hope they do, but I, I, I think I agree with you. It's a shootout. I, I think Washington maybe squeaks it out 52 to 49. Ah, okay. Well, we shall see, but we both yes. think it's going to be a shootout. And therefore a fun game bet, the, bet the over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I, wonder what, I didn't look what it is. I wonder what ooh. the... You look that up while I transition us to the Rose Bowl. We're out in Pasadena. Alabama team, which looks a lot better now than they looked early on. By the way, the over-under is 64 and a half. Oh, so that, yeah, well. So the, the, the oddsmakers yeah. are expecting a shootout. Yeah, I'm still I'm still over it, so I guess I'm I'm on the side of bet the Iowa the Not by a ton. Okay, uh, so right. Michigan, Michigan versus the revived Alabama. Michigan's taken some moral lumps, self-inflicted moral lumps of late, uh, but is still a fabulous team. Alabama looks better than it has all year. Including when it lost to Texas at home. Yep. They were so still I, I'm going to say, like, I think the, the conventional wisdom out there in commentator land is shifting toward Alabama. Um, I think that's exactly what Michigan wants. I think Michigan yeah. has the best defense in the country. I think Michigan has an offensive line that is as good as any Alabama, probably the best offensive line this side of Texas's that, that Alabama has played against all year. Um, and I think JJ, I, I actually think JJ McCarthy is a lot better than people realize. And I think yeah. like they've been sort of spare, like they have not had to have a game that fell on to JJ McCarthy. This might be that game, but he's capable of doing it. So I'm going to take, I'm going uh, Michigan 27, Alabama 21. Okay. All right. And then, um, yes. and then, uh, well, I guess we, we will have to, you know, reserve decisions since you don't agree about who would be in that final. Well, so here's the problem for me, right? If it's Michigan and Texas, I'm totally screwed because those are my two teams. No, no. See, this just shows that you are a glass half empty guy, whereas I'm a glass half full guy. Yes. I would say you're totally covered. Like one way or the other, you're you're going home able to celebrate a national championship, and you'll <sighs> if, and you'll if, have the consolation of knowing that your other set your other favorite team was right in there till the bitter end. But but the worst case scenario is if Alabama and Washington win, and then neither of my teams make it, and oh, then exactly. it's just like. Well, the yeah, worst case that, scenario is the one that befell poor TCU against Michigan last year, where you're like, "Yeah, I'm in the final," and then it's like, uh, you know, "Oh, sorry, against Georgia, uh, the utterly, utterly crushing uh, defeat, which takes yes. away all the fun." So, what you what you do need, if your both your teams get there, you do need it to be competitive. It's no yeah. fun, I can tell you, when they're not. No, 
All right. Speaking of things not being fun, um, I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah. <laughs> um, we hope you guys have a very, very happy and healthy holidays. Um, we'll be back for apparently uh, 16.5 is the over-under for episodes next year. Um, but <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say for 16 more episodes this calendar year. We'll oh, yeah, be back well, in a few happening. hours with uh, episode 245. That's not happening. But let me let me just say, I mean, Bobby and I, 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 I don't usually purport to speak for Bobby, but I think I can here. We are really grateful to all of the folks who have been both old and new listeners and subscribers to this podcast. You know, we do this for you guys and hearing from you, you know, hearing nice things from you, seeing those numbers of downloads really just makes it fun for us to keep doing it. Here, here. So happy holidays, all. Uh, stay safe out there. Uh, I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. He's at Bobby Chesney. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, and go blue slash, you know, uh, hook them. <laughs> Adios.